will be reading Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. You can follow along on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word. So I want to start by talking about um, Kaiser Soze, Hannibal Lecter, and uh, Yuval Nora Harari, the author of Spa uh, Sapiens. And then I want to talk about how good therapy works. And then we'll get into the three rebellions I mentioned last week, which will lead us to talk about devil worship. And then we'll end with eating dinner. So that's kind of the <laughs> roadmap. So I'm going to pray for me. So, <laughs> Lord, I really do thank you for the graciousness of this church uh, over and over again. Uh, and we, we together want um, your presence. And we want to, to um, not have, uh, as the New Testament says, the wool pulled over our eyes. Like the, where we're like, can't see, we're blind. But we want to, we want to see. Um, we want to see, Lord. So would you open our eyes to see the things that are in the scriptures and how... Um, not only are they just like cool, like, okay, cool, that's there, but, um, but it's everywhere. And how do we live into your reality? Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, in Jesus' name, amen. So there's that, that very famous quote by Kaiser Soze in the movie The Usual Suspects that goes like this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he doesn't exist. And this is a really fun quote. It's a very quotable quote, and it's very true. However, it's actually becoming less and less true in that more and more people in our very materialistic, rational society are believing in the devil. And not only that, more and more people are becoming convinced that you can become possessed by the devil, where at the same time, people uh, interested in Christian faith is declining. Now, I bring all this up only to say that these two realities are not a coincidence, the Atlantic ran a very serious long-form article on exorcisms uh, a few years ago, a couple years ago, entitled American Exorcism. Priests are finding more requests than ever for help with, a de with demonic possession, and a centuries-old practice is finding new footing in a modern world. That was the, what the article was about. In this article, it says that both belief in the demonic and the requests for exorcisms were on the rise. It says, polls conducted in recent decades by Gallup and the data firm YouGov suggest that roughly half, America, half of Americans believe demonic possession is real. The percentage who believe in, uh, in the devil is even higher and, in, the, in fact, has been growing. Gallup polls show that number rose from 55% in 1990 to 70% in 2007. Now, after interviewing people who have been demonized in this article, and, 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 you, and it says that when they've been like... Um, where some of the people that were interviewed were demonized and they were referred to by, to priests by their clinical psychologist, um, the writer of this article, which was, he's a, a modern person himself with modern apprehensions, is left wondering what the heck is going on, like anyone would. He says this, the inescapable question is, why, or rather, why now? Why in our modern age are there so many people turning to the church for help in banishing demons from their body? And what does this resurgent interest tell us about the figurative demons tormenting contemporary society? His conclusion later on in the article is that so many modern social ills feel dark and menacing and beyond human control. And he lists like drugs and 
loss of jobs and blighted communities. And maybe these crises have led people to believe in other more supernatural forces and their work in the world. Because society seems a bit out of control, we have to turn to something, something higher like greater forces. So he goes to um, the, 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 a Yale historian of the early modern period, and he tests out this theory. He goes, this is why I think there's, there's a rise in exorcisms. And the historian says, no, your theory is not true at all. He says, actually, you will see an uptick in demonization when a society turns from Christianity or religion ebbs. And his reasoning is because people hunger for contact with what he calls the supernatural. And he says, when you move away from God, people knowingly or unknowingly open up their lives to all sorts of demonic activity. Now, if you're, if you're a bit skeptical, skeptical about all of this, I totally understand that. In his book, and I've quoted this book before, The Death of Satan, uh, Andrew Del Banco, a secular liberal intellectual professor at Columbia University, writes that secular people in the West specifically have no vocabulary to deal with evil. And because of that, it's hard for modern secular people to cope with evil. In his book, he shares a scene from the acclaimed horror film, The Silence of the Lambs, where Clarice Starling, a young FBI trainee, is asked, asked the cannibalistic serial killer Hannibal Lecter what happened to make him so twisted. And Hannibal, played by Anthony Hopkins, says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anyone's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say that I am evil? And Del Blanco writes right after this. He says, modern people cannot answer the monster's question. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources for coping with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. And we don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. Now, I think the last sentence brings up a very interesting point. I think we're living in the middle of a, a, a transition, the cusp of a very important cultural moment. Our materialistic, scientific, modern worldview has disenchanted the world. It has taken away the belief in things we cannot see. It says the way things are and the way we are can all be observed and quantified. And it has left us wildly dissatisfied. Yuval Noah Harari says in his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, that, quote, Human, humankind is losing faith in the liberal story that dominated global politics until recent decades. Humankind is losing faith in the liberal story, he says. I think the point is this. The secular story is slowly losing credibility. It has disenchanted the world and has not offered any satisfactory alternative explanation for both the evil and the good of our world and how we can find meaning in it as humans. Which brings me to good therapy. Basically, all good therapy, the way all good therapy works, is that in order to go forward 
you have to go backward. In order to move on from being stuck in your life somewhere, you have to go backward to notice patterns, to learn, to forgive, to heal, to integrate, to become aware, which is, it's kind of like rowing a boat. In order to move forward, you have to face backwards. Now, I want to do that this morning with the Bible. I would like us to go back to the first book of the Bible, but please hear me. I do not do this so that we, so that we can just like go to the past and look about all these past cool Hebrew words. That's not the, the intent. It's so that we know how we can move forward. Not that we can, you know, go back to the way they did thousands of years ago and live that way. That's not the intent. The intent is that we go back to get unstuck in order to move forward. When the Bible puts up trying to explain the evil in the world and the good in the world and our meaning in it, all of it is compressed into the first 10 chapters of the Bible because it's where the story and thus our meaning in it got stuck. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now, one of the ways to frame these first 10 chapters is under the moniker, The Three Rebellions. And that's what I'll do this morning, The Three Rebellions. I said last week that we're, we, we kind of know the first rebellion. We think everything is because of the fall. But actually, if you read Genesis 1 through 10, it's actually three different rebellions. And when you pay attention to what happens, it makes sense of a lot of what goes on in our world and the rest of the Bible. So, Genesis chapter 3. Now, the first rebellion, context here. Humanity, Adam and Eve, were created by God to be like God and given authority, vocation for taking care of a garden, what was called the Garden of Eden, which was a mountaintop garden that was this overlap of heaven and earth. Okay, so it was a very tall mountain, a garden on top, heaven, earth, and it was like where it overlapped. And Adam and Eve were told to spread this garden all over the world. So if you saw two worlds overlapping, two circles overlapping, right in the center was Eden. And the mandate that humanity was given was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with this, this Eden, to shalom the earth. That was the mandate, to take and spread the peace and the harmony and the integration and the joy and the love of God and take that and spread it everywhere. That's a very simple idea of like humanity's meaning in the world. This is our meaning in the world according to the Bible. To take the good of God, the shalom, the integration of God, the interconnectedness that we have with God and each other and spread this kind of shalom all over the world. That's opening pages of the Bible. Now, Genesis 2 uses a phrase naked and unashamed to kind of get across this idea. They were naked and unashamed. There, there, there was a, a kind of integration, a kind of innocence that comes from purity, that comes from a purity of heart where you're naked and unashamed. Now hang on, because this is where it gets really weird, okay? The Bible is weird, and it gets really weird right here. Because there also, in the garden, is a talking snake. There's a talking snake in the garden, just heads up, that's there. Now this should strike you as odd. If you're reading this, you're like, that's odd. Snakes don't talk, and you would be right. It is odd, it's supposed to be odd. It's supposed to strike you as being really weird. Now, I said last week that when Isaiah the prophet sees the vision of God's throne, there are seraphim around it. Seraphim are snakes in Hebrew, which is interesting. If you, if you look up a, an image of Isaiah chapter 6, you won't see a snake with wings, but that's kind of what Isaiah saw. Actually, it says, Isaiah 6, I'll just read it to you so you know. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim were snakes. Okay, now back to Genesis 3. If Eden was a place where heaven and earth overlapped and the place God had his throne, then it might make sense that a talking snake, a serpent, a seraphim might be there. So that would make sense to you. The question is, according to the narrative, what was this particular serpent doing in the garden talking to humans? What was going on? And we, we read this in Genesis 3. He said to the woman, the, the, the serpent, the snake, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then the woman said to the serpent, we may eat tr- fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not, you will not certainly die. You won't die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be, okay, this is strange here. Our, our translation of the Bible says like God, but a literal Hebrew translation could go something like, you will be like the gods. So you can look that up in your own like lexicon. You can look that up in your own, your, on your own time, bluelettlebible.com. Just do, do your own research. But you become like or spiritual beings, as we talked about last week, knowing good and evil. Now, if you listen to the the, the, the follow-up podcast that we did last week, I had Tim Mackey, just, he sent me a voice note explaining this. He's like, one way to interpret this is that you will become like spiritual beings, the council around God's throne room who know good and evil, and that you will become like, like one of us, essentially. And then Mackey says it's reiterated later on when God banishes the humanity out of the garden, he says they have to leave now because they become like one of us knowing good and evil. Okay, so what's going on here is that there's, the, there's, a, there's an overlap between heaven and earth, and in this overlap is God's throne, and around God's throne, there are these serpent-like beings. One of these serpent-like beings, we can assume, rebels. Now, the point in all of this is this. My point here is that this wasn't just a human rebellion going on. That's my point. When we think about Genesis 3, we think about it's the fall of humanity, but it's actually not just the fall of mankind, it was the fall of this divine being as well, the serpent. It was a divine rebellion and or spiritual being's rebellion and a human being's rebellion. It was two rebellions happening at this time. A rebellion that we called last week happened in God's heavenly council. God created a heavenly family and God created an earthly family and they both were created like him. The heavenly family was created like him in the heavenly realm. The earthly family was created like him in the earthly realm. So we don't just have a humanity problem. The Bible talks about having a deeper problem than just a humanity problem. A deeper problem than just not wanting to worship God. We have a deeper problem. This is what the Bible says. We have a a way bigger problem than this. Do we choose, we do choose to do wrong and go our own way, and all that's true. We're capable of heinous evil, and at the same time, there are other powers at play as well. Adam and Eve were barred from the Garden Mountain Temple, but God doesn't give up on his project to spread his shalom and love, and now that sin is in the world and death is in the world, because that's what happened, He's now telling humankind to spread his grace, 
to spread his, keep, can keep doing that. And then this is where you get into the second rebellion. So rebellion number two, Genesis 6. Now, post-Eden, you have um, like a bit of a spiral, a doom loop, as they say these days, right? So you kind of have that happening after, after Genesis 3. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. Actually, what God says to Cain is that sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So all, these, all this language is loaded, right? Sin here is like has animation, has almost a physicality to it, and you're supposed to rule over it, just like Adam and Eve were given the mandate to rule over the beasts of the field and the things of the earth, like to fill it with God's glory. So you have a bit of this kind of thing happening here. Rule over this thing. But he doesn't, and it rules over him, and he kills his brother. And then this is where it gets crazy. Now, I'm going to read. The, the Bible gets weirder, and here it is. Read this slowly. This is in there. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Remember last week we talked about the sons of God was another word for these heavenly beings, these um, beings that sat on, uh, in God's um, like, uh, temple courtroom, like that, that, that sat in his council, divine council. That's another word for those were sons of God. So the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. So basically, heavenly beings saw that human beings were beautiful. And they married them, any of them they chose. And the Lord said, and God's not happy about this. The Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. For they are mortal and their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim, you're like, wait, what? I've heard a lot of these people. Yeah, they're here. The Nephilim were on the earth in these days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God, the spiritual beings, went into the human beings and had children by them, they were heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord, okay, so you can assume that God is not happy about this at all. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, how wicked people became after these so-called divine beings were intermixing and intermarrying and having intercourse with human beings and creating Nephilim that later on you hear is, is like the giants later on in, in the Bible. And that every inclination of their human heart was only evil all the time. There was only evil on the earth. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. Okay, again, the Bible's getting a lot more weird right now. Sons of God are those divine counsel, the spiritual beings, daughters of, of, of uh, the daughters of, of man were human beings. They had offspring, the Nephilim, later called the giants. Now, I'm not going to say much or speculate much about the Nephilim here. Maybe a podcast or a special lecture later. Because I learned last week, I can't get too weird on a Sunday. So there you go. <laughs> Nephilim, they're there. It happened. What do you do with that later? This spawned, whatever happened here, spawned such a wickedness in the human race that there was only evil all the time. And we get a glimpse of God saying that all he created is slipping from his grasp. 
He's losing creation, his creation, his heavenly creation, because they're all created beings, and his earthly creation, humanity. He's losing it all to evil. And this is the second rebellion. And the second rebellion is like the first rebellion. It's a twin rebellion. It's both human and supernatural. Like there's something behind the evil. It's not just a human problem, but something humans can't fight against. Something so deep that there seems to be no hope at all. And so God, of course, judges the earth, cleanses the earth. That's where we get the flood story. But then you have rebellion three. Rebellion three happens in Genesis 11, and we talked about this at length last week, so I won't go at length today. But post-flood, God once again tells humanity, this is chapter, Genesis chapter 8, verses 17. He tells humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my shalom. Fill the earth with my peace. The same exact thing that happened in Genesis chapter 2. Like, this is what I want you to do. Humanity, let's start over again and fill the earth with peace. With peace, shalom, integration, wholeness, God's glory, however you want to say those things, it's this idea of shalom. Okay. But by chapter 11, we find that people are not scattering all over the earth, spreading God's shalom, but people are coming together to build a ziggurat, um, uh, a temple structure to the heavens. They're trying to build a new Eden, a place where heaven and earth would meet but with more, way more nefarious plans. As I said last week, this is a strange story, and the Bible is getting a lot more weird here. Because how can a large building be a threat to God? Have you ever read the story and like, why is a large building a threat to God? It doesn't make any sense. Like, God sees the, you know, when this, we're building the cell's first tower, and he starts freaking out. He's like, oh my gosh, you're at it again. Like, <laughs> by the way, maybe, I don't know, that's a whole different thing. Maybe another topic, maybe a lecture. Anyway, is that what it is? God is afraid of large buildings? Obviously, that's not what's going on here. God is not afraid of, like, tall buildings. Like, oh, my gosh, you're going to touch the heavens where I live. What are they doing? That's not what's happening here. It wasn't just a building because humanity wasn't alone. This, too, was a twin rebellion, a divine and human, spiritual beings and human beings coming together to usurp God's authority, his plan, and his will. We're told later in Deuteronomy that what happens as a result of the Tower of Babel is this in Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. There's that phrase again, sons of God. According to the number of divine beings, his divine counsel. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, there is a lot of Bible speak in here. Like, you have to kind of, I won't say decode, because that might sound too weird, but you just have to understand the background of this. So when God divides the speech after Babel, he actually places sons of God or, or, or Elohim or um, we, we, the literal translation is gods. He gave gods over nations or spiritual powers over nations, however you, whatever is easier for you to digest, okay? I just, you, you digest this at your own time. He gave spiritual powers over nations that these people will then worship these powers eventually according to the numbers of, of like the people and um, the divine council who essentially rebelled. And then the Lord started over again with Israel, with, 
with um, Abraham. God said, I'm going to do this again, 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 again with Abraham. And I'm going to choose someone who's old, who can't have kids, and his wife can't have kids, and they're as good as dead, and I'm going to bring life through their body. So everyone will know that I did this. And I'm going to be with them. And then, Abraham, I'm going to call you to myself, and I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the world. Because the project is still going on, you see, and it's now through you and your people. And then you have the rest of the Old Testament, by the way. This is literally the rest of the Old Testament. Them being faithful, Israel being faithful, not faithful, obeying, disobeying, being a light, but then not being a light, getting to the place of power and authority in the world finally, and then all of it crumbling down, and then division, and then intermixing with other gods and worshiping other gods and God disciplining them and exiling them. This is all the rest of the Bible, okay? So, let me, su- let me summarize. The three rebellions were all both human and divine rebellions. Humanity is being tempted from God's plan of edening or re-edening the world over and over again. Make the whole world like Eden. Same temptation over and over again, but with different and more drastic consequences every single time. So here's, the three rebell- here's what the three rebellions uh, brought the world. Next slide. You have death, the grave, and the underworld as a part of this divine. You have um, now death enters the world through Genesis chapter 3. You have Satan that's thrown down to live in, some translations say, the underworld. So you have a, a grave. You even have a, an underworld. Um, uh, a sheol, a place you go after you die, because of the rebellion. You have demons and rebellious spiritual beings that somehow could have intercourse with, with, with humans. It's just really, really weird and strange, and I'll just admit that it's really weird. But what happens is you get demons as a, as a result of this. Demons are in the world now because of this twin rebellion. Not just that, you have the dominion of gods over places. You have powers. You have false gods or other gods that people worship over nations that are intelligent and powerful and all of that stuff because God made them that way, but they're in rebellion. You have wickedness and sin that enters the world, that people's hearts continue to default mode towards wickedness, towards sin, towards like deformation all the time. And then you have this denial of our cultural mandate to spread shalom. Like you have this like hoarding spirit where when something goes good, you want to hold it all in and keep it for yourself and not spread it. You have the Tower of Babel, like, hey, we could spread this all over the world. No, 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 no. Let's all get together and keep it here and keep it tight and not spread this anywhere. This is our thing. You have that thing, that thing that's in every one of us. That's why we have, like, garages and storage, or everyone wants a garage and a storage unit. You know, like, I want more stuff because I want more things. I want to keep it to myself. And when something's good, I don't want to tell that many people about it because they might get it and take it. And I want this. And it, and it, it eventually leads to, like, disorders and where we get shows like Hoarding, which is the scariest horror movie ever made uh, program is Hoarding, right? It's just so scary. Um, so you have, all, this is all the effects of, this is all the effects of these rebellions, On one hand, when you see these things at work in our world in ways that we can't explain, when they get so big that no one could explain them, in ways that seem to be more powerful than willpower or, or you might say, at human scale, the scriptures say that there are other things at work there too, in play, behind the scenes, but not just that. If this was a divine 
and human rebellion, you would expect that if God were to do something about this, it would have to be from the same divine and human reality. Are you with me? A divine and human would have to do something about this. And this divine human, fully divine and fully human, would have to deal with all of, next slide, these things. And not just that, but when said divine human Messiah actually came, you would expect these same powers that led the first God-given human project astray to try and lead this new project astray as well. Which brings me to Matthew 4 and devil worship. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Obviously, I'm talking about Jesus. By the way, does anyone know? Okay. I'm, I, you're smart enough to know he's talking about Jesus right now without saying Jesus. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, <laughs> Matthew 4. Jesus begins his ministry by being baptized. And then it says in verse 1 that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you understood twin, the, twin, the twin rebellions, all of the supernatural stuff in the Old Testament, and you get to the New Testament, this all like, all of this makes sense. You're like, oh, of course. Of course he's going to go fight the devil. This is literally what he came to do. So he goes into the wilderness to fight the devil. And the devil gives him three temptations. And we don't have time to go through all of them. Let's go to the last one. The last temptation is this, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain. Does that sound familiar? Okay. A very high mountain. High mountain, mountain Eden, mountain garden. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He's, okay, on a physical, okay, physically you could say he went to the tallest mountain in that area, which might have been Mount Hermon, which actually has a whole other kind of things layered into it, but but I don't, well, you could go there, but I want to just, if you just did that, you would just go, I'm doing it again. Sorry. <sighs> Calm down. So many things. He was on Mount Hermon. He could see all the kind of Roman outposts and Jerusalem and, and all, he can see all these things like, hey, I'll see all everything you see. I'll give it to you. But on a supernatural level, he's on the, like a place where he sees all the kingdoms of the world and the rulers over those kingdoms. Right? And he says, all of this I will give you. Which means Satan was over all of that. And he was. The rebellious Elohim, the rebellious spirits, the rebellious divine beings, the rebellious gods, whatever language you want to understand that being, are over all these things. And the Satan is saying, I will give you all of it if you will bow down and worship me. I mean, if you think about this, as, as Satan, who is a, a fallen being, and you get more color in Satan through Isaiah and Ezekiel of what was going on there, to think that he rebelled, wanting to be like the Most High, and to have Yahweh in the flesh, bowing down, worshiping at his feet. This is his dream. This is what he wanted more, more than anything. This is why he rebelled. I finally have it. I have him right here. And I have all the stuff that he wants. He wants his world back. I'll give you your world back. If you worship me. And then Jesus says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Which is a callback to Exodus where it talks about worshiping false gods. Which means the Satan would be a god. A false god. A real 
God that you'd be tempted to worship because he would give you the things you want. But Jesus resists the temptation, and from there he begins his ministry, which can be defined as casting out demons. Put that other slide up again, the, um, the list, the death grave. Yeah, thank you. Basically, you could define Jesus' ministry as going against all these things. Casting out demons, teaching about the kingdom of God, forgiving sin, going to certain places to deal with the powers, like uh, the Gerasenes in, um, in Mark 5. He goes there. Gentile territory, territory that's unclean, to deal with a person who has a legion of demons. That's territorial, right? That's like a territorial spirit that we see in the Old Testament. We see him going to Caesarea Philippi, which was known as the gates of hell. Like there was, I, I've been there. There's an actual opening where they believe that all of the, the, the spirits, the demonic spirits came from this one place. And Jesus goes there and stands there and says, who do you say that I am? And they say, well, some say this, some say that. Well, who do you, who, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He goes there and he proclaims that you've said it and I'm going to go and, and die on a cross and take over this whole thing. Like he, he, He's going to these powers and proclaiming who he is to the powers. You see him overcoming sickness, and then you ultimately see him overcoming death by dying. The only way you can overcome death is by dying and then rising from the dead. That's the only way you overcome death. And so Jesus dies and overcomes death through resurrection. Now you might be thinking, okay, that's, okay, cool. Do you really expect me to believe in demons though? Like in ghosts and spirits and the things that are like how pre-scientific ancient people saw the world. That's how they saw the world. We don't see the world that way anymore. They didn't have the soft sciences to explain mental illnesses. And they didn't have the hard sciences to explain how the world was made. Why would we go back to a time before these sciences to learn anything about humanity? And I, that's a great question. It would be wrong to think that what the Bible is, and thus the people who claim to believe the Bible or follow the Bible, that the Bible, all that it is, all that the Bible is trying to do is to drag the world back to what it was like then, way back then. If you think, well, the Bible is just trying to pull us back into this archaic, pre-scientific age, like God and his word are behind us trying to drag us back to these pre-scientific ideas about the world. Is that really what you want us to believe as like modern, rational people that believe in technology? Like that, 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 you want it to drag us back there, back then? See, that's not the energy and the movement of the Bible. The Bible doesn't pull us back as much as it pulls us forward. What God is doing, God is always ahead of us, drawing us towards something. And that something has to do with redemption, which means redeeming of what was. And what was? What was at the beginning? What's the thing that needs to be redeemed? Ultimately, it's our vocation. It's our calling. It's the meaning and it's our purpose as humans in this, on this earth, which we find back in Genesis 1 and 2. And that we find that Jesus finally deals with all the things that get in the way of that. And when that happens, and he deals with all these things, and he overcomes all the things that would would plunge us into darkness and the wickedness and the evil, all that stuff. When he deals with all that, he gives us a renewed vocation. Matthew 28, 18, this is our text. Then Jesus said to them, all these words are very important. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
You can say he took them. He took the ones on earth because he destroyed the powers, right? All of it's been given to them, to him. Therefore, go and make disciples. So first of all, he's declaring spiritual warfare, Jesus is. He's like, I have all authority now. The powers, the demons, the gods, all of it, I have all power. I overcame sin, death, and the devil. I have it all now. Therefore, you would expect him to say something like, triumphant, and he does. Go. Go and spread this. Don't stay like here in Jerusalem. By the way, if you read Acts, they tried to stay in Jerusalem, and then what happened was um, there was um, persecution, and God used persecution to scatter the church all over the world. But don't stay here. When you get the Holy Spirit, don't stay here. Go there. Keep going everywhere, all over the world. Keep spreading this, this message. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which baptism is spiritual warfare. It's, the, it's a declaration of allegiance to King Jesus and not allegiance to other gods. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, notice it says, go make disciples of all nations. All those nations that were divided up by tribal gods and warfare and hoarding, go to all those nations and proclaim Jesus as Lord, that he's overcome them, and teach them to obey me. Go and call them into relationship with Jesus. Get back to re-edening the world, shaloming the world, cultivating its peace, its creativity, its justice, its righteousness, and its wholeness. And all of that happens through a relationship with Jesus because he's with you always. Father Martins, who I mentioned last week, who is the exorcist that has that one podcast, when he talks about exorcism, he says this. And this will make sense in a second. He says, the job of an exorcist is not to cast out the devil. The job of an exorcist is not to cast out the devil. The job of an exorcist is to find out how the devil formed a relationship with, its, with his victim and then helps the victim to end that relationship and form a new one with Christ. Abolishing one relationship for another is the essential part of exorcism. It is what exorcism is. I bring that up because... I think this is very fascinating. I bring that up because I want to talk about eating dinner. <laughs> so there's this really, really strange, super, super strange text in 1 Corinthians that Paul says. And you, I don't know if you've read it. But in chapter, um, chapter 6, Paul talks about food sacrifice to idols. He's like, idols are no thing. So don't, don't eat food. Sacrifice to idols if it's a stumbling block. But if, if not, just eat food. Just bless it. It's all God's. He's basically saying idols are nothing. But then you get to chapter 8 and he says this thing. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break and a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, an idol is nothing, okay? But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. You're like, what? what? Okay, I thought it was nothing. No, demons. Not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. 
you cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Okay, so idols are nothing, and there's one sense that idols are nothing. The things that, the little trinkets and stuff that we worship, they're nothing. There's nothing actually even in them. What animates things like sex, money, and power is us, our hearts. They are nothing, but we make them something. We all know this to be true. But there is another sense in that these things are real. They're powerful and intelligent and hell-bent on your deception and even your destruction. And both of these realities are all about participation. That's what Emil represented, was participation. And what God wants to do, and I bring up exorcism because it's, it's about relationship. Like what God has called... What, what God has called us to do inside of all of this like spiritual realm stuff is to cultivate a relationship, a participation with Christ. This is it, to stay close to and participate with Christ. And maybe what this, hopefully this series starts to do is open your eyes to see the things, there's other things you're participating in. Some of them could be so wrong that they would be, you can't do both mammon and Jesus, if you remember Jesus' teaching about money. You have to do one, and so choose. Choose. Will you and I start to cultivate this thing with Jesus, to start participating? This is why communion is so important. And I want to lead us there now, so would you stand with me as we pray? 